0: Today on Something You Should Know, how much do most people spend on lottery tickets in a year? It is a surprising number. Then, if you do it right, you can make big money selling your old stuff.
1: Baseball cards, comic books, Beatles memorabilia, lunch boxes, albums. So there is still a lot of stuff out there that people are just discarding for a dollar or two when they're basically, it's you know, worth a hundred or two
0: plus how to charge your cell phone really fast, and challenging the rules of sleep, because a lot of our sleep rules are causing trouble.
2: A lot of our trouble with sleep has to do with our society and our expectations. As soon as you have a rule, you have a conflict. Just tell a kid to go to bed at a certain time. You have a conflict. The way our society structures sleep creates a lot of these conflicts, both within families and between groups of people.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life today. Today something you should know with mike carruthers hi welcome to something you should know do you play the lottery i play it sometimes and i don't play it because i think i'm really gonna win i play it because it gives me a few moments of fantasy to think about what i would do if i did even though i know i won't and that few moments of fantasy is worth a couple of bucks for a lottery ticket But people spend more on lottery tickets than you might realize. In the states where the lottery is played, Americans in 2014, Americans spent $70 billion on lottery tickets. That's over $300 per person in those states. In fact, Americans spent more on lottery tickets that year than they did on sporting events, movie tickets, books, video games, and recorded music. According to Bloomberg Research, the average lottery player in America loses roughly 40 cents for every dollar in tickets purchased, which is a really bad return on your investment. You've probably heard it before, but if you took the same money that you spent on lottery tickets and invested it and left it alone, over time you could create real wealth for yourself. The odds of that are almost certain. The odds of winning the Powerball are one in 292,201,338. And that is something you should know. Have you ever had a garage sale or an estate sale or maybe you sold something on eBay or Craigslist? It's kind of fun to make money off of something that you don't want or need anymore. And it's... It's easy to imagine this would be kind of fun to do as a career, to buy and sell stuff on eBay or have garage sales or whatever. Well, one person who is really into this is Aaron Lapidus. He is the Garage Sale Millionaire. He has a book called The Garage Sale Millionaire. His website is thegaragesalemillionaire.com and this is his life. Welcome, Aaron. And so start by talking about how
1: you got into this buying and
0: collecting and selling
1: stuff. You know, I started when I was seven, when my mother said I was not going to be able to get any more toys until I sold some old toys. And whatever I sold from my collection of toys, um, I could take that money and buy more toys. And we had our first garage sale and I've never uh, looked back. And it's created me in my teens to uh, keep on buying and selling and get bigger and more exciting things like coins and, and comic book collections. And I kept on rolling it and rolling it till I amassed a small little fortune, which I then turned into a well-known art gallery in, in Denver, Colorado.
0: So where do you find this? I mean, do, is there stuff in my attic that maybe is worth some money or, or likely not?
1: You know, I I think there is, you know, unless you know the value of every single piece in your house, there's a very good chance that something was passed on down to you that you have stored away in a box or a trunk that you haven't looked at for five, ten, twenty years and all it takes is for you to rediscovering that item and then doing a little research and finding out exactly what it's worth. People would be surprised if they went from top to bottom of their house and undid closets and drawers and uh, garages. They will find a lot of stuff to have a great garage sale with. Stuff like what? What am I looking for? You know, you could be looking for anywhere from Old cameras, to tin toys, to coins, to historical memorabilia, to even old fishing uh, rod, uh, even the old antique bamboo um, reel, the rods and reels. You know, all that stuff is highly collectible. You know, antique pens. Um, old marbles, believe it or not, you know old marbles that are a hundred years old are worth thousands of dollars so there is there is money almost anywhere in your house if you just look and if All you see is a whole bunch of what you think is nothing. Well, that's great. It's still sellable at a garage sale, and let's get it cleared out and make some money. So then you can go to the next chapter of the book where it teaches you how to buy and sell at Craigslist and and estate sales and then resell
0: everything on eBay. I mean, I've looked at stuff, and, and I have found a few things I had laying around. And my first instinct was, and what I did was, just put it on eBay and sell it.
1: If you do your research um, there's nothing wrong with putting it up on eBay but what the big problem what people do is they don't know exactly what they have they see something a lot like it on eBay and they said oh that must be my piece and that is that's not good because they could be either misleading people what they have or they could be undervaluing what they have so unless you're hundred percent sure you want to make sure you do all your research and put it on properly with great pic- pictures and a great description.
0: But the argument has always been that if you sell anything on eBay, it will sell what it's worth because that's what happens in that kind of marketplace. People will pay for whatever it's worth.
1: You know, it, that's a, a kind of a great comeback, but it doesn't always hold true. I, I have been on eBay since 2001. I am a top-rated seller. You get like a little little stamp on your uh, little site, and it basically means that I make everybody happy. So if somebody sees something on my website and they see I'm a top-rated seller, um, and see something on your site and you're not, and you only have like a hundred list, you've had a hundred sales in your lifetime, people will pay more to buy it from me because they trust me more than they trust you. Just saying, and and this is the way that I teach people to build up their eBay site, and then so they can get as much possible money for that item. Take better pictures than the competition. Work on a better description. Um, maybe you give free shipping. You do little things, so you're going to get five to ten percent above what other people would get.
0: So. And it takes some work. It isn't just like, you know, you're going to find buried treasure in your basement and all of a sudden you're rich. I mean, this is going to take some work. And I would imagine that, you know, it's not going to be one thing that's going to make you rich. It's you're, it's more of an ongoing process.
1: I don't teach people how that they're going to find the Declaration of Independence be fi- behind an old picture. Um, but I do teach you how to start the ball rolling where you get a kind of a roll, kind of a uh, basically a a small roll of money from the garage sale. And then you go out and you you hunt through Craigslist and you go to estate sales and you're at every garage sale during Saturdays. And you make this into a second job and maybe into your primary job because when you do it well, there is a lot of money to be made. You should be easily able to make several hundreds of dollars on a weekend if you're doing it right.
0: Is a garage sale a good way to sell stuff, or is it a good place to go find stuff?
1: Both. It's a good way of selling stuff if the items are under a hundred dollars or very large. Um, so if you have a bedroom set, you know, putting a price tag on two hundred and fifty bucks, great. If it's uh, you need more money, then it's Craigslist. Um, if it's small and valuable, then it's eBay. Uh, C- eBay. Uh, cr- Your garage sale is the best way to get rid of a lot of things that are priced between a dollar and a hundred dollars that are kind of don't have, it really takes somebody walking by to really want it. eBay is great for those collectibles, those things that you want several million people looking at every day and that's what eBay has, you know, tens of millions of people look at eBay every day and that's where you're going to get the big money. Garage sales are good for you just to start out and get a cash roll going, and, and it's a good way to clean out your house and, and move from there. What are, if there are
0: any, some categories or, or uh, items or things that, that are particularly
1: valuable that people might not think of as being valuable? Stereo equipment is, is one. A lot of people think stereo equipment is junk, and, you know, and they think old stereo equipment well, if you have stereo equipment that has those, you know, those tubes in them that you kind of think of those old TVs, well, the tubes and stereo equipment is, a lot of brand new stereo equipment is actually putting tubes in them. And a lot of older stereo equipment, some of it's highly sought after. It can may only be five years old. It could be ten years old. And a lot of people don't understand stereo equipment has a lot of value to it. Um, I b- truly believe there are stuff from the '60s, which people that's not far that far back you know, baseball uh, cards, uh, comic books, uh, toys, even toys, Beatles' memorabilia, um, lunch boxes. The list goes on, and it, it's not an antique. It's, we're, we're only talking about, you know, uh, 45 years, 40 to 50 years away, and that stuff, there's a genre of '50s, '60s and early '70s stuff that has a lot of value. Albums still have value on certain albums. So there is still a lot of stuff out there that people are just discarding for a dollar or two when they're basically, it's you know, worth a hundred or two. And on the flip side of that, is there stuff that people
0: are collecting or that they, they have that they think someday they'll retire on that maybe
1: is not worth much, but there's kind of this perception that it is? I'll give you an example from my mother. My mother said, "Aaron, we're going to give you something that you're going to be able to retire on." Made this big old spiel, opened up a bottle of champagne. Kind of was a big, big momentous night. Said, "Aaron, I'm going to give this to your family." I I would hope that you would only sell it in emergencies or when you retire or, you know, when you need to pay for your son's college education because it's going more than pay for it. And I'm all excited because I have no idea. I thought I know everything this person owns. And she walks me into this uh, big closet and shows me all these boxes and she goes, son, this is every single... National Geographic that was ever printed, and they're all yours. You're welcome. And let's just say I almost fell over, because the, all that is worth whatever recycling of paper goes for about now. <laughs> so there's the story of not everything's worth as much as people think that it is.
0: I imagine that's, a, that's true for a lot of things, that people... Um value in their own mind something much higher than perhaps the marketplace.
1: Yeah, like furs. Women, you know, furs was really a big thing in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. But then fur kind of fell out of style. And some people still wear fur, but they have, some people have furs that were given to them from their parents and they want to sell it. Well, you know, that is very hard to sell furs. Old newspapers, people think just they have a newspaper of the landing on the moon. Well, you know, so does a million other people. So um, family Bibles, another thing. Everybody says, my family Bible is 200 years old. Unless your family is famous, that Bible is only worth something to you. So those are kind of the things that people are misled that have true value.
0: I think that people think that you would be more of the exception than the, than the rule that, you know, maybe you've devoted your life to this, but that, that for just an average Joe to start to do what you're doing would take a long time to get to the point of actually supporting themselves doing this kind of stuff.
1: You know, it did take me a long time because I was learning as I was going, and I started really young with no money, not even a vehicle, And now people have, you know, back then I did not have eBay. There was no Craigslist. Um, So I was doing everything from classified ads and walking around the neighborhood and calling stores. So people actually have it easy. And all you have to do is read a book like mine, read other books that can make you an expert in certain collectibles, and people can just, if they take it slow, they can get up and running, I say, in a, in a, easily in a couple of months. And the more that they participate, the better they will get. Will they be an expert overnight? Absolutely not. But can they actually make this into a money-making career in six months to a year? I believe so.
0: I'm speaking with Aaron Lapidus. He is author of the book, The Garage Sale Millionaire, and his website, thegaragesalemillionaire.com. Are you one of those people who just buys things with whatever credit card you grab out of your wallet? Well, that that could be a costly move. NerdWallet, you've heard of NerdWallet. NerdWallet lets you compare credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. So, if, for example, you like travel rewards, you can see which credit card gives you better rewards than the credit cards you've got now. Think of what you could do with better rewards free flight, room upgrades, who knows. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and so much more at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Credit is subject to lender approval and terms of each credit card issuer apply. something you should know i'm pretty sure you're gonna like ted talks daily and you get ted talks daily wherever you get your podcasts so aaron you were talking about negotiating but you can't really negotiate on ebay i mean it's an auction so you 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 wait until the auction's over and give the best price you can but
1: there uh, there isn't a lot of negotiating is there I actually stand to to differ on you with that. On eBay, of course, you can negotiate. People, just because they say buy it now for $500 and there's no best offer next to it, you send them an email saying, you know, your best, your buy it now offer is $500. Um, If you don't sell it in a week, I'll be more than happy to give you $350 for it anytime. There you go. I will have to say when I do that, 60% 60% of the time, people accept my offer. I even will, when people have it in an auction where it's seven days and, and peop- nobody's bid on it I will, and I think it's too high, I will send them another that, an email saying, if it doesn't sell, please think about my offer. I know it's a couple hundred dollars what your starting price is, but I think that's what it's valued at. I really like the item. Please consider me something like that. So everything is be to be able to be negotiated on so you never give up you always try you know people in my art gallery people come to me all the time it's a high high-end art gallery in a beautiful neighborhood it's an area called cherry creek north and right inside in denver people ask for a deal all the time but i'm an art a fine art gallery When t- you would think nobody would make me ask me to do a better price anything there's always a way to make a ask for a better deal and
0: when they ask your art gallery for a better price, do they get one?
1: Uh, they usually they usually do. If I don't feel like I can work something else by you know switching out the frame or throwing in a, like a book or something, and I've had that item for a long time, I will give. I, I don't want to lose the sale. When you buy stuff and resell it.
0: I mean, what types of margins are you talking about? The difference between, you know, what you buy it for and what you sell it for?
1: Let's just tell you everything. I incorporate my time and I don't Not everybody. You know, when you start out small and just starting it, I think people should be making thirty five to fifty dollars an hour with their time. That's starting out. So if you go to a garage sale, you incorporate the hours that you've had in that day, how long is it going to take you to list it on eBay, and and with all the items, then you kind of divide what you need to make. If you're making any less than $35 an hour on picking out things, you're doing something wrong. Literally, you're doing something wrong. And I try, for me, I need to make uh, about $250 250 to $400 an hour, and, and I do it all the time. It is, it is a point where you get good at it, and you are able to make everything work smoothly to how you um, list it on eBay, to how you ship it, how you answer questions on eBay and, and in your inbox, and you do it where you try to, to template it and do everything about the, exactly the same, and it gets easy, and you get better, and you make more money.
0: Do you ever buy stuff on eBay and then sell it right back again on eBay for a profit?
1: One step better. I do that all the time. Uh, 40% of everything bought on eBay is resold on eBay. What that means is people are either listing it wrong or they're undervaluing that item. And that's why you have to be on top of how you sell your items so you're not the one somebody's making money off of. 40%
0: 40% of stuff is sold again?
1: Yes. When, I was, when the market was so bad a couple of years ago, I almost lost my gallery. And um, it's not something that I'm happy about, but about three years ago, the economy for everybody was horrible, and nobody was buying art. And it was the last thing people needed on their top 50 things that they need to live their life. And I'm not even on the top 50 and, um, and it got really bad, and basically, I went back to what I knew, and that is how to buy stuff inexpensively and flip it. And I was doing that on eBay all the time. People were, did not know what they had. They were misspelling it. They put on the wrong description. The pictures were bad, and I basically swooped on in. I bought it, repackaged it. I had good ratings on eBay. And I made money on it. And I would double, triple, you you know, quadruple my what uh, I made on it because people were just not paying attention.
0: That's really surprising. That's you would think that if people were were putting things on eBay to make money, they first of all would spell things correctly and, you know, take a little time. But, you know, people are people, I guess.
1: You know, I'll give you a – there's, a, there's a, a fun, fun artist. His name is Michael uh, – people pronounce it Goddard. It's really pronounced Goddard. How would you spell his last name? Just, just spell it for me. How would you spell it? G-O-D-D-A-R-D. Very good. That's the way a lot of people, when they're selling his art, spell it. They don't take time. They never look at the certificate. For some reason, they have no sense because they don't know who they're collecting. It's spelled G-O-D-A-R-D. And so they list it G-O-D-D-A-R-D. And so only one hundredth of the people looking for Goddards are thinking to misspell the word to find the piece. So now, instead of getting all the money that they can on selling that item they're getting very little and it's maybe not even selling cuz people are not thinking about misspelling the name to find the art
0: lastly what's the what's the biggest mistake you think people make when they do this that they get burned or they end up you know selling it for less than they paid for it or you know wh- where's the, the big novice pitfall
1: is that there, there's kind of a two prong one they buy something and they need the money really, really badly, and they need they they're all excited, and they need to flip it and get it on eBay. And one, they don't they don't do the research to find out what it's truly worth. They don't take the time to Google it and see what it's sold for on eBay, and they just throw it on. So they make the same mistake that whoever they sold bought it from made the mistake selling to them. That's the huge thing. The second thing is. Um, they may they sell at the the wrong time of the year, and that that can make that can make a, a big deal of when it when it's sold.
0: So give give me an example of selling something at the wrong time of year.
1: The best time to sell anything is is from Thanksgiving to a week before Christmas. You'll get your highest amount of money. The worst time is January because people have what I like to call you know. a a credit card overload and they have to pay for their credit card somehow so they're dumping anything that they have on value of value on eBay Craigslist so it really lowers the value another great time Mother's Day right before Mother's Day right before Father's Day those are like and right before Valentine's so right before those major kind of holidays that people need to buy stuff as gifts those are all great times August is a very, very slow time. People are vacationing. They're spending money on travel. So that's another bad time. So that that's another thing people have to be aware of. And this is a mistake of when they put things on the market.
0: Well, I know a lot of people have a lot of fun doing this. And I, I've sold stuff on eBay and I've had garage sales and had a big estate sale when I moved across the country, and and it's just, it's fun. I mean, it's a lot of work, or it can be a lot of work, but it's fun, and it's good to get some expert advice from somebody who's uh, in the trenches doing this every day. Thanks, Aaron. Aaron Lapidus is my guest. He is the author of the book, The Garage Sale Millionaire. His website is thegaragesalemillionaire.com, and there's a link to his book in the show notes. People talk a lot about sleep, how they sleep, how much they sleep, how much sleep they need, how they can get by on less. And there's been a lot of coverage in the media about how people are not sleeping enough and the toll that takes on us. Interestingly, we have rules for sleeping that no one ever questions as to when you sleep, where you sleep, who you sleep with or don't sleep with. And the interesting thing is that lack of sleep and the problems associated with it are a problem for everyone at some point in their life, it seems. Here to talk about it is Benjamin Reese. He is a professor of English at Emory University and author of the book, Wild Nights. Hi, Professor. Welcome.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start by talking about the rules of sleep.
2: We have a lot of very tight set of expectations and rules for sleep that uh, we've been led to believe are are natural or normal, um, but but that are actually fairly recent inventions. And uh, there's a lot of economic interest in making sleep productive in ways that um, I think kind of put undue pressure on it.
0: Everybody has trouble sleeping sometime, and it certainly is a conversation that people seem to have a lot i mean it's it's one of those things you know religion politics, and people talk about sleep and how they don't sleep or how they I only need four hours of sleep or whatever i mean it, it's a it's a thing on people's minds
2: yeah, it is, and I think it's on people's minds a lot because the way that we're expected to sleep doesn't work for a lot of people i mean if you if you were to ask your listeners what their image of a good night's sleep is, you'd probably get a pretty standard set of answers. So you do it at night uh, for around seven or eight hours. You do it more or less in one straight shot. You do it in a, in a private, you know, noise-free room that's probably climate-controlled. Um, you do it with at most one other consenting adult. Um, you get yourself on a schedule. You do it more or less the same time and with the same routines every night, and you separate out the children from the parents. You train the kids from a very young age to uh, sleep on their own in their own separate rooms through the night. And what's interesting about that uh, from a historical perspective is that almost nobody in human history did any of that until uh, about the last couple hundred years. And so that's what I mean when I talk about taming sleep, making it conform to these rules that... Are, are really rather recent inventions.
0: <laughs> well, well, I've never heard her expressed express that way, but you're right. I mean, those are the rules. You have just outlined the rule book of how a family is supposed to sleep. And, you know, I've always thought, I sleep in bed with my wife... But a lot of times I, I wish I'd, i 'd I'd just be in bed by myself i 'd rather sleep in my own room, and because you know as she rolls over, I wake up, she snores or coughs, and I wake up and sometimes I, I would just rather be in my my own bed
2: yeah, well, look at it this way. I mean you, you probably grew up um, being sleeping in your own room in your own bed, right
0: as Sure, a kid yeah,
2: yeah, I mean that 's the way parents expend an enormous amount of time and energy training their kids to do this, despite the fact that no kid ever wants to do it on their own, right? I mean, you've got you to gotta have a method. And uh, go to this great lengths to do it, and then you expect that when the kids grow up, they'll peaceably share a bed with somebody else. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Through most of human history, families slept in pretty close proximity, sometimes even sharing the same bed space. And um, when, when you train somebody to control their own space and then expect them to share it with somebody else. It's a recipe for conflict. So, you know, that other person is going to be snoring or, or, or playing with their phone or, or taking a trip to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and it, it's its discombobulating.
0: So are you saying that it would have been better if, if we all slept together so that those things don't bother us?
2: Maybe. I mean, I, I, I think there are good reasons why parents want kids to sleep in, in different rooms. I mean, I certainly d- did that with my kids, and I, I wouldn't want to sleep with my kids. Um, you know, parents have to get up and punch the clock and go to work, um, and the, our, our, uh, our natural sleep systems are different enough that um, we need to kind of separate each, o- separate each other out spatially uh, in the home in order for people to, to kind of follow their own schedules. But that's really, that's, that's kind of a function of the economic organization of our society rather than anything natural about our species. And I think, I just think understanding that uh, might give people some, some flexibility or leeway for thinking about arranging things differently.
0: Well, when you think about it. If one, like my wife, when she goes to work in the morning, she works in a in a hospital as a nurse, and she has to be there at 7 o'clock. So she gets up very early to go to work on the days that she works, and I always wake up when she gets up. Well, we've never had the discussion of, well, on those days, why don't you sleep in the other room? Yeah, so, maybe it would make more sense. But we, to... but you're right. There's, it's, not, it's not even open for, dis- it's not even something people would consider discussing. It would be, it would be... <laughs> it would be um, an insult almost, to suggest that somebody sleep in another room.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, but I think, you know, one could have that conversation with a partner and say, listen, I love you while, I'm aw- while you're awake, <laughs> but this sleeping thing just isn't working out so well. Maybe it would, maybe it would decrease stress. Uh, but I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all solution for, for anybody. I just think people ought to feel some license to, um, to experiment with the rules.
0: It's nice to hear you say that because now now people could start to think. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, let's let's get that rule book out and see if these rules really make sense for us. Um, and and let's talk about the 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 problem of s- sleep quality because people, you know, there's a whole industry of sleep clinics and sleep aids and sleep snore things and, you know, I mean, it, it seems like sleep should be such a natural thing. So why is this huge industry? In existence,
2: yeah, it's almost as if we've forgotten how to do it, and we need to to buy products to uh, either retrain ourselves or to correct for some kind of damage that's been done to our sleep. There are over twenty five hundred sleep clinics in this country alone, and now you know you don't even need to go into a sleep clinic to to really measure what's happening to your to your sleep. There's all kinds of wearable devices, even smart beds that'll monitor your movements and your perspiration and um, uh, you know, and then feed it into uh, a, a data stream where you can analyze what's happening to yourself. I think we've become completely obsessed by sleep. Uh, and I think there were, you know, certain economic forces in our society that tried to shoehorn people into a certain kind of sleep. And, but when that doesn't work for people, um, we now have all kinds of products and services and experts helping us try to fix it and make it conform to those rules. So um, there's a lot of money to be made from sleep.
0: But it is true that people have trouble sleep. I have trouble sleeping sometimes. I mean, it, sometimes it just doesn't seem to work.
2: Yeah, as do I. And insomnia is, uh, and, and other kinds of sleep disorders are, are, are very real things, and they can cause great pain for people. Uh, and I don't want to say that everything about contemporary sleep has gone to hell. Certainly, it's um, uh, you know, a huge advantage that we have... Um, Sleep scientists really understanding what's happening at the level of the brain and and the level of the body, and uh, many people get relief from these various kinds of uh, services and, and and products that have been developed so i don't I don't want to dismiss that, but what I do want to say is that there a lot of our trouble with sleep has to do with with our society and our expectations as soon as you have a rule, you have a conflict just tell a kid to go to bed at a certain time, you have a conflict. Uh, and, and the way our society organizes and structures sleep creates a lot of these conflicts, both within families and between different groups of people.
0: What's, what's the prescription then? What are, what are you suggesting people do differently?
2: Well, the first thing I want to say is that Wild Nights isn't a self-help book. It's not going to tell you how to sleep better or, or what's the right way to do it. I think in some ways, the sleep self-help book's can be part of the problem. You get all this conflicting advice, and um, you don't know you don't know which system or method to, to choose. Um, but what I w- want to say is that one way to um, to think about your sleep is to think about the role that sleep plays in your life, and how is how is your waking life organized, and what is the best way for sleep to to mesh with that waking life, rather than to think about, oh, do I have a problem? Do I need a pill? Do I need this advice? Do I need this device? Yes, you may need one of those things. But if you think about sleep as a part of your social world, rather than a retreat from it, you might just have a different perspective on how you handle it.
0: So give me an example of what you mean by that. How, how, would, how would that play out?
2: For, for instance, the debate about parents' Co-sleeping with children. If you have a child that just simply won't be tamed and you know become a good baby and sleep on on their own, um, it might be helpful to say that the rule about putting a child in another room is something that was invented over the last 150 years or so in our culture, and it doesn't correspond with any kind of basic. any kind of basic need that that humans have, recognizing that that child's need for comfort, soothing, proximity at night. Um, if you look at the scope of human history and the variety of ways that different cultures practice sleep, you might start to think that maybe the way we've been taught to do it isn't isn't the correct way, and so it might not be a a, a problem with your child's. Uh, development or 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 some um, sleep deficiency that they have but it might just be a way that your family is set up
0: yeah well and two e- even if because i know when my son was young he he was one of those kids that didn't want to sleep alone when <laughs> wish we'd talked to you then but uh, <laughs> um, but i knew and it happened that he grew out of that and and you know i mean it's it, People do. He now wants to. He wouldn't want to sleep in our room even if we paid him. So I mean, it's, it's at some point, pe- kids will f- fix that.
2: Yeah, but if you if you push them too hard, you you might have some blowback in the other direction. Right. Um, and there's a new there's a new book out uh, that's a, a history of the teenage bedroom, and it's called Get Out of My Room. Right. And um, the teenage bedroom has become sort of a fortress. Um, and I think uh, you know there have been anthropological studies that show that families that co-sleep um, and societies that privilege co-sleeping actually have less intergenerational conflict than than those that uh, insist on children being apart from the parents at night. So. Um, so where did that come from?
0: Where did that where did that start?
2: Well, I think it really started in. Uh, in the industrial revolution in, in the 19th century, the idea that everybody had to be on a very strict schedule and that work happened outside of the home. You know, when people, when, when people's work was in the home, either they had a blacksmith shop, you know, downstairs, or they were farming or, or, um, or uh, spinning um, uh, fabrics in the home or had a shop front, there wasn't a, a great pressure For everybody to get on a on a really strict sleep wake schedule, but as soon as people had to clock in uh, at the fact the sound of the factory bell, get out of the home, um, the parents had to get themselves on a schedule, and school times compulsory school education um, was also developed around around the same period. Children had to get out of the home to be schooled, so everybody had to get on a strict schedule, Um, but because adults need less sleep than children do, it became important to separate out the generations at night. And um, that's, that's a big part of where the trouble began. But, you know, another source of this is just our culture really prizes individualism and privacy. And we, we use nighttime sleeping for children as a way to train kids to become these sort of hardy uh, individuals. And uh, uh, and there's a long history going back to the 19th century of, um, you know, kind of pathologizing families that where the parents sleep with the children.
0: You know, I wonder if the electric light had a part to play in this because now parents could turn the light on and read or do something else while the kids were sleeping, and so we needed to push the kids into another room.
2: That's right. Well, the electric light and all the other kinds of entertainments that came along with electricity, radio, and television, suddenly you brought. Uh, possibilities for nighttime leisure into the home. And parents want to enjoy that during during the night hours, and that will disturb the, the child's sleeping. When sleep was more attuned to the rise and fall of the sun, the, and and interior spaces were darker, everybody tended to retire at an earlier period. Uh, so so yeah, that certainly played a big role in uh, changing family dynamics.
0: Well, I really like this discussion just because it's like, uh, wow, yeah, you know, we don't have to just follow the rules because those are the rules. Uh, You you can customize the whole sleep situation so it actually works for you rather than try to work around the rules.
2: Well, you can to an extent. But you you have to remember that sometimes uh, rules that are made by societies are just as... um, Uh, just as strong as rules that are made by nature. And, you know, our system of using money is a made-up system. It doesn't correspond to anything in in nature. But if you don't play by the rules of money, there are consequences. And there are often consequences for people who can't play by the rules um, either because, you know, if you think about it, think again about a middle-class family arrangement um, with children off in different parts of the, uh, different parts of the house and Parents sharing a, a bed together, that takes a lot of money to um, to make possible for many families. You have to have a home of a certain space, of a certain size, and uh, and many families who can't afford that um, then really have difficulties getting people on the schedule that they want. As you said, your wife has to get to to um, her job at 7:30, and um, your kid your kids probably have to get to school at at, at a certain time, and there's just no way around it. So, so the rules, just recognizing that, the, that, that this is a, a made-up rule um, doesn't make it easy for people to throw it out the window. But I do think the first step is is recognizing what's social and what's biological.
0: Well, but I think that's a huge start. I mean, there, there are rules, but they're not in stone, and you can manipulate them if they If possible, to make things better for you just because it 's a rule doesn 't mean it 's the right rule for you so
2: yeah and i 'll give you a little story uh, from my own experience that shows both the possibility of changing the rules and also the difficulty when I was in my early twenties, I spent a year living in Israel, and I lived on a kibbutz, which is a, a collective kind of socialist utopian. Society, and um, in order to free up the parents to follow their own uh, schedules, and particularly to to free up women to work um, at the same level as as men, um, they decided in the early days, back in the 1920s and 30s, to have children raised collectively at night. Uh, so there was somebody who was a professional caregiver who would look over a a, a room full of sleeping children, and the parents would go would would be free to sleep on their and wake on their own schedule. Um, it was a really dramatic kind of uh, kind of change, and I think it, it had far reaching consequences. It also led to you know the kids feeling like their cohort was almost more important than the family unit um, so there are consequences to doing it different ways as well but That was a really fascinating example of a a society that said, you know, we're just not going to accept these rules about sleep.
0: Yeah, I agree. Why not? Question the rules, see what works. Benjamin Reese has been my guest. He is a professor at Emory University, and the name of his book is Wild Nights. And you will find a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks, Professor.
2: Okay, thanks very much.
0: If you need to charge your smartphone in a hurry, it's a good idea to turn it off. This can really give you more juice in less time because if your phone is on, it's using up battery power at the same time you're trying to charge it. Here are some other charging tips. If you don't want to turn it off completely, put your phone in airplane mode. Your phone won't keep searching for Wi-Fi and cellular signals, which will save you power. Lock your screen and resist looking at your phone while it's charging. Every time you peek at something, it slows the charge down. Use a wall charger. Phones charge faster through an electric outlet than through a USB port. And take the cover off. Phones heat up when they're charging and covers lock that heat in. Heat will kill the battery. And that is something you should know. There have been some great reviews on Apple Podcasts of late. I really appreciate that. If you have a moment, please leave one at Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you listen to this. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening to Something You Should Know.